Exodus 13 is where we're going to begin. The reason why we're going to cover through 17 instead of just 13 and 14, we're beginning to see some beautiful things about God's story. And one of the things that I've observed um, in the way Moses is writing these things down for us, he intends on it to be a story. And he wants us to see reoccurring themes, and he's using the same wording over and over and over again. So we'll see some things about God's character and about the response of God's people to God's character. And so we're supposed to read this as a story. And really what Moses does after the Exodus rescue is he takes us to Mount Sinai. And along the way, there's some remarkable events that happen. The, the Red Sea, the manna in the desert, God providing water in miraculous ways. And if we're, not, if we're not careful, we'll get caught up in the little stories and miss the big story. And so we're going to cover what I believe Moses intended to be, one reading to see this beautiful pattern of God interacting and leading his people. Some key questions that we're going to be looking at today. What does it look like to follow God? Okay, this is what's about to happen for these folks. They're going to follow God. Just like Abraham followed God, um, God's going to lead his people now through the wilderness and the desert. And so we're asking that question. What does it look like me to, for me to follow God like on Monday morning? What does it look like for me to follow God in parenting and in, in marriage and in the way I conduct myself at work? And, uh, and for some of you, what does it look like to follow God in retirement? And so we're asking that question. What does it look like to follow God? Um, we're asking some questions like, what can we expect to happen when we become characters in God's story? That's a big question right now in the church culture abroad today. What can you expect to happen? And then this question, why do sometimes things seem to get harder after we submit to God? Okay? And this is really the opening of the story. Like, for folks that have been in slavery for 430 years, they wake up for the first time in their known life existence and they don't have anything they have to do, okay? They've packed up their provisions to last them for a while. It's going to be a little bit before they start running out of food. And so really it's like, I mean, this is like, this is a big deal. They're discovering a new identity here. What does it mean to not have to go out and gather straw and make bricks and, you know, and to try not to get, you know, beat by the Egyptians? What is, what is this all about? And so our background for the story that's going to ensue at the end of chapter 13 kind of, kind of sets us up to understand what's going on. I think, it's, I think it's incredibly important to read verse 3 of 13 before we get into the rest of the story. We're, we're just, just a day or so removed from, from, the, from this amazing event of rescue that we saw last week. Where God literally takes about a million people out of slavery at one time. Okay, this was not a civil rights movement. It didn't happen over the process of elections. And like we saw, like it was just slaves today, free tomorrow. Okay? And I think it's, it's incredibly important to see what God tells them in verse 3, this, this command. Moses says to the people, God speaking through Moses, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. What does he tell them to do? What's his command? Don't forget. Such a strange thing. This is the day after. Like, don't forget. And really the rest of 13 is, uh, is, is Moses explaining that. When your son comes to you and says, why are we eating this meal? You remind him. You tell him about what happened on this day. Right? You, you bind these things on your heart. You bind them on your forehead. Specifically, he tells them how to remember the day of the Lord's rescue. 
Okay, so that's incredibly important for the story. Now, a couple of other things that I want to pull out before we get too far into it. Let's look at verse 17 and 18 from, from chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Okay, so we're asking that question, what does it look like to follow God? So God says, before we start, remember. Remember the rescue. You're going to need that information as we move forward. And then we get this just real brief introduction here from Moses who says, oh, by the way, the way God led them was not the direct route, okay? It was the route of trade from Egypt to Canaan, which was a much easier route as far as travel was concerned, but there was a major obstacle in the way, which was the Philistines, okay? Now, is the problem here that God is not confident he can conquer the Philistines through his people? No. They're going to come back at a place in time, and they're going to defeat the Philistines. Defeating the Philistines is not the issue, but so look at what God does, what he says. For God said, I'm not going to take you this easy route. The Philistines are on that journey. I'm not going to do that lest the people change their what? Change their minds. Forget. Lest they change their minds when they see war and do what? Return Return back to slavery. Okay, so here we have, what does it look like for God to lead his people? Our first instance is God is leading them to avoid some major obstacles that will crush them, crush their spirits, and turn them around. Okay? Now, we're going to keep reading, but let's start here. Because, Because we understand as God leads our lives, our hope is that he will do that for us. Right? I've surrendered my life to you. Please make it easy. Isn't that the essence of what we pray to God? I, I just, just please, like make, me, make me successful, make me prosper, make this easy, help me get rid of this debt, help me with my stubborn-willed child, help me with my stubborn-willed husband, help, you know, make it easy. And so, on, so the very first step, God says, I'm not going to take you this way. Is he saying he's not going to take them that way simply because it's hard? No, he says, because if I take you th- that route, it will crush you, crush your spirit, and you'll want to return back. Now, a couple other things I want to note. Verse 18, but God led the people around the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. We know the story. Is the Red Sea going to be easy? No. Okay? So he's going to lead them by way of the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Okay. So God is leading his people. And the first thing he does, he says, we're not going to go this way. It's the easy, obvious route. It's actually the way that you got here. You came this route. Your forefathers came this route. Joseph came this way, right? His brothers and father came, came this way. We're not going to return that way. Not because it's hard, right? But because your hearts are not ready to go up against the Philistines. I'm ready. You know, God's saying, I'm ready, but you're not. Okay? So I'm going to take you a different route. Now, this is beautiful when we get to the way God leads his people. Just a little bit more in 13, 21. And so here's how God leads them. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Incredibly important. Um, God is leading his people. Okay? It's, It's easy to get caught up in the story and go, Moses is leading the people. That's not what Moses wants you to understand. 
We're following the presence of God. Okay? And, and not only that, as Moses looks back and rewrites this story, he's remembering what God said, right? That by day or by night, his presence did not but depart before the people. So any problem they have is not going to be because God's presence departs. Now, I think we have just a side note, maybe even a soapbox for a second, okay? Um, I think we have a very, very shallow view of what the word presence means. And um, while I participate in social media and smartphones and the whole deal to keep life organized and moving forward, um, like, the idea of presence is supposed to be a thick thing. I'm going to use the word thick, okay? Like, parents... Your presence in your children's life is not helping them manage busy schedules and making sure they have food on the table and passing them by in the hallway. You're supposed to be present, like thick in their lives. Okay, so we step back and go, what does it look like to follow God? I just, I can barely hear him and, and I don't know is maybe he's prompting me this way and I'm kind of confused and is he saying yes, is he saying no? And, and we have such a shallow experience of God's presence, right? I mean, we just pass him by in the hallways and we wonder why we can't hear his voice Clearly. And so one of the things that I'm just observing in like social media and our culture is that it allows us to be in a lot of places at one time. And so rather being thick, thickly in one place, we're, we're thinly in a lot of places. Would you agree with that? I mean, you're just like balancing email, text, Facebook. Oh, did you see they had their baby? And like we're not like experiencing being at the hospital, right? We're just lightly experiencing the presence of that event. They were being led by God's presence thickly through the wilderness. So thickly that you could see his presence. And Moses wants us to remind us from this point going forward, any issues they have is not going to be because of the lack of God's presence. He goes before the people and he never departs. Okay, So that's another thing. When God leads his people, he's leading them away from obstacles that will, um, will, will ultimately crush them, cause them to turn back. He's leading them with his very presence but there's another thing I want you to see here. Verse, this is chapter 14. Then the Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Now there's a reason why he's going to do this. He wants Pharaoh to think that they're confused. And he, he's building some, some false self-esteem in Pharaoh because he's a little bit bitter. He didn't just let them go. He let them go with stuff. He let them go with like silver and gold. Like, he, like his tail was tucked between his legs to whenever he's letting them go. And so now he's got a pride issue, and so God's messing with his pride, and he says, I want you to turn, tell the people to turn back. And it's gonna look like they're confused. Tell them to turn back and encamp in front of Pi, Hahifroth, do my best. Will you wanna take a shot at it? You probably can. Between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Face this big mountain with a sea behind you which is a great place to go camping, but it's a horrible place to have a war. Okay? It's a horrible place to have a war. They came out equipped for what? Battle. Okay? So they're in their minds. They're, ex they're expecting battle like at, at every turn. He brings them before this big mountain and the sea. They were wondering... For Pharaoh will say to the people, they are wandering in the land. And not only that, the wilderness has shut them in. They're trapped. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they 
did so. So while on one hand, God is leading his people away from some primary obstacles that will crush them and cause them to turn away, he's still leading them into trials, isn't he? Right? He's still leading them into situations that are going to require complete 100% trust in God, which, which is the opposite of trusting in yourself. Putting them in positions where they actually have no room at all to trust in and of themselves. So what does it look like to follow God? Is he going to lead you away from things that could crush you and kill you? Yeah. Does that mean that he's going to lead you down an easy path that won't have obstacles and trials? No. No. Gosh, this explains so much about just our experience. Like, I'm thinking about parenting right now and marriage a lot when I think about this story, what it means to follow God. Like, we step out of one trial, and it's like, finally, we, we've, we've overcome this one, right? Oh, good, we can rest now. Oh, my gosh, right? We overcame uh, teaching our children to eat without, like, painting a Picasso painting on the floor and a table, right? It was a big step. Oh, finally, they can get all, most of the food in their mouths, now potty training, right? Potty training is done. Now sleeping in your bed all night, not getting out, right? Then that's done. It just continues to go, and then they become teenagers. Then they go to college, and it's like, when does this, right? This, when, does the, when does the trial end here? Marriage is much the same way. It's not, the, it's not the journey around obstacles. It's a journey through obstacles from one trial to the next. And so this is what we're going to see unfolding in God's story. Now, what I want to do now about just taking some snapshots of four events is I want us to look at some patterns, and I want us to see ourselves in the story of what happens with God's people, okay? So let's, uh, let's move on to the Red Sea, the actual event. We're going to start in verse 10. Okay, so the, the people are kind of trapped. They know they're trapped. They're feeling very vulnerable, expecting war. Here comes Pharaoh and his army. Very, very prideful, vengeful. Um, as a matter of fact, the word even says that when they left Egypt, they were a little bit defiant, so, like, just to make matters worse, they were a little bit taunting with Pharaoh when they left, okay? So, here he comes. So, verse 10 says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they did what? Feared greatly. Okay? They feared greatly. And the people cried out to the Lord. Now, this sounds really good, getting a hard time, cry out to God, he delivers. But what we're going to see is that they're crying out over and over and over again is not real edifying. Not like, God, I trust you. I'm in an impossible situation. You're going to deliver me. It's more like, what are you thinking, God? Like, why did you bring us this way? So I'll let you see this as well. Okay, so then, and the people of Israel cried out to God. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness? Okay, that's an expression of sarcasm, right? Are you kidding me, Moses? You brought us out here to die? Is it because there, you know, there weren't enough graveyards there in Egypt? You want us to die out here? I'm just reading the word. That's a remarkable indication of what's going on in their hearts. They say, look at this, how the blame shifts to Moses. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Who brought them out of Egypt? Who went out of his way to make sure they knew that nobody else was delivering them but God? The presence of God is right there. And they turn to Moses and go, what are you doing? Why did you do this to us? Verse 12. 
Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Didn't we say this was going to happen? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So God's leading his people with his presence. He leads them into a trial. And their response, what's the first thing that they did? Forgot. See? God says, remember. Do not forget this amazing rescue. You're going to need that memory when you step into hardships and trials. The first thing they did, what? They forgot. Started complaining. Started saying, we should have trusted in our own ability, our own ideas, our own knowledge, our own solutions to the problems. At least that we would have known what to predict then, right? Okay? Should you see verse 13? Moses says to the people, <laughs> Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. What an interesting thing to say to complaining people. See, the problem is, is, is that you're not, tr- like, it's a, it's a heart issue. Stand firm. What are you doing? What are you, you're scared of that? I mean, that's the exact people that God just delivered you from. You see why, like, Philistines would have been huge, but, like, you know them. You saw them, like, yesterday. You saw their fear and their trembling, how they tucked their, like, you've already forgotten. So he said, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you're not, you're not ever going to see them again. The Lord will fight for you. Look at this, and you have only to be what? Silent. God is telling the people to trust him how much? 80%? 99.9%? 100%. I don't even want you speaking. Matter of fact, when you speak, I could just mess this things up. Don't even talk. I want, God is saying, I want you to be an audience of something. Okay? I just told you not to forget. You've forgotten. Just sit and watch. I'm going to do it again. The same people. And he does. This remarkable story of God parting the Red Sea and God's people crossing on dry land. And what happens after they reach the other side? Right? Destruction. This water just collapses on the Egyptians and kills them. I want you to see something at the end of this chapter, starting in verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That's a hard thing to forget, right? I mean, you wouldn't think you would forget something like that. And in this moment, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. That's a good move. Not fearing Pharaoh anymore, not fearing circumstances. I'm gonna put my fear right here. They feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. And then what happens, verse chapter 15 begins with Moses' song. They, they, they break out in worship. Belief and worship. What a great response when God rescues you, right? I mean, this should be the pattern of our lives. God steps in, he rescues, we witness it, we go, wow, that was amazing. There's no other explanation but the mighty hand of God. And then we believe and we worship. Okay? So we're going to look at three more events, just some quick snapshots, and I want you to see this reoccurring theme and pattern that happens on the journey, okay? The next thing that happens, verse 22, 
Um, Your title probably says that the bitter water was made sweet. They basically didn't have any good water to drink. So then Moses made Israel set out from, from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Now, who's leading them? God's presence didn't depart. So God is still leading them. Moses is saying, okay, it's time. Let's follow the presence of God. And they're, they're following Moses who's following God. So God is still leading his people with his presence. Then they went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. Okay, now, water's a big deal. Okay, it's not like they, uh, they were just, you know, didn't have any dessert to go with dinner. They don't have water. It's a big deal, okay? And when they came to, to, to Marah, or Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, okay? So it's kind of like West Texas. You got sweet water, right, which is one of the last places you can get sweet water. Um, and then you have other names of towns out there that talk about how Either boring the landscape is, like plain view or level land, right? Or the water stinks here. You know, you get names like that to explain what's going on there. It's the same thing going on here. This place, Mara, it was kind of like that, just that real blah, nasty smell that you get when water has too much mineral in it, lots of sulfur in it. It was bitter. Like the, their animals could barely, the camels could barely even drink the water here, okay? So they're parched, they're out in the wilderness. Again, another vulnerable situation. The people, verse 24, look at their response. The people did what? They grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, has God already displayed in the story enough evidence that they should begin to trust that he loves them? I think so. And that God is trustworthy. Has God, if you go back for a couple weeks, already displayed enough evidence in the story that he sees every detail of their needs? Okay, Let's take it a step further. Has God not already displayed like his mighty power over water? Yeah. Like getting water to go from bitter to sweet is a miracle we're about to see, but compared to the Red Sea, right? So it's not like... But God isn't like leading them through this progression of trusting him and, and learning to trust him with everything they have. Now they're in a situation where the water's bitter. And so they began to complain and grumble. What have they done? They've already began to forget. They forget and they complain. God's leading his people with his presence. He leads them into a situation that kind of tests them to trust him and him alone. And they respond by forgetting and complaining. But the pattern continues as God steps in. Look at verse 25. And he cried to the Lord, look at this, and the Lord showed him a log. What a remarkable phrase. Okay, this, something cool is about to happen with the log, but like God is there. He didn't just stumble upon a log and go, I wonder what happens if we throw this log in the water. God says, like, here's a log. Like, I'm leading you with my presence. Here's a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became what? Sweet didn't just become drinkable, right? I mean, it became like pleasant. Again, God leading them into this challenge of impossible situation. They couldn't find water to drink on their own. They grumbled and complained, and God steps in once again with a rescue and takes them from bitterness to sweetness once again, okay? Right after that, Right after that, your title will talk about something about bread from heaven, 
This is the, the manna and quail story. Okay? They get hungry. Chapter 16 sets out, says this. They set out from Elam. Still God's leading them. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. I, I don't know a whole lot about that title and what our, I just don't know. Maybe there's something there that you could read in a commentary. I didn't have time to look that up and what that actually represents. I think the main point is God is still leading his people. Okay? And so, which is between Elam and Sinai, because we're headed to Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, we're a month and a half in, okay? After they had departed from the land of Egypt, verse 2, the whole congregation of people of Israel did what? They crumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, oh, like, I'll get to that in a minute. Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to do what? To kill the whole assembly with hunger. You see the pattern? Did you bring us out here to kill us? Oh my gosh. What have they done? Forgotten. That God is good and trustworthy. He sees their every need and he is Jehovah Jireh. He provides. Like the name that they call God by, like those names were derived from experiences. The, 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 the Jehovah Jireh name God provides comes from Abraham with his son Isaac on the altar. That story we just right, walked through a few weeks ago. And at the last minute God provides Je- Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides and they've forgotten that the Lord provides. Then Moses said to the people, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now this idea of testing them is a recurring theme. After he turns the water to sweetness, it was, there was a testing to see if they would obey the statutes. And so God's looking for something here. He's looking for a level of trust and obedience, which is leading us to the Ten Commandments, by the way. Okay? So God's going to miraculously step in. Look at verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of Israel, come near before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling. Sound familiar? God hears. Come near to him. God is here. I see you right now and I, I saw your disobedience. Right? I don't know if you experienced that. I, I know that I do. And as a young man, I experienced that a lot. A whole lot. Go through a rough week, not just, you know, self-absorbed, right? Treating myself before I treat others and, and, and thinking of myself and indulging in the flesh. Come in on Sunday morning. A lot of times the last thing I want to do is approach God. And God's like, why? I, I saw every bit of that. And so he says to them, I, saw, I heard your grumbling. Come near to me. Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Has God's presence left these people? No. Yet they forgot. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. See the pattern? Remember the Red Sea? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will know that I am the Lord. And then at the end, the people believed. They were able to see, oh, God rescues. 
He sees us. He rescues. He's the Lord. And then they forget. Then God provides sweet water, and they forget. And now he's providing food for them, quail and bread. Not a bad gig. I mean, that's, that's the kind of camping I like to do. Quail? Like, it could have been like crows and bread, right? If you're a hunter, you know, especially, like, that's one of the prime, like, that's nice food. Go buy a quail at a restaurant. God is providing for them in just really sweet ways. Is he still walking them through difficult situations? Yes. Is he still trustworthy in those difficult situations? He's more than trustworthy, isn't he? He's more than trustworthy. So once again, trial, test, the people forget, complain. God steps in in sweetness and provides. Just look at this last one, chapter 17. Again, water from the rock. All right, I'm beginning to see a pattern here. Right? I'm beginning to see a pattern. Verse 1 of 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved, out, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. I've heard that before in this story. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. They're quarreling. That's what Moses wants you to hear. They're still complaining. This time, they're getting mad at each other. They're quarreling with each other. They're quarreling with Moses because they don't have water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, look at this. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Oh, my gosh. You're beginning to feel like you're camping with a five-year-old. Right? It's just like the, the ride to the restaurant with a five-year-old who's saying what? I'm hungry. Hi, hungry. Nice to meet you. I'm daddy. Don't do that. Quit complaining. Have I ever not fed you? I mean, Hudson, you're five and a half years old. Three meals a day for five and a half years. I've more than proved that I'm going to feed. I know you're hungry. I always know you're hungry. Matter of fact, sometimes I make you eat because I know you're going to get hungry later. These are the people of God. You see the pattern? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Oh, why'd you bring us out here to kill us? Isn't that how our kids act when they get hungry and thirsty? Oh, I'm going to die. Yeah. We, we teach appropriate crying in our house. It's appropriate to cry when your leg is broken. It's even appropriate to cry when your heart is broken. It is not appropriate to cry because you're hungry. Daddy doesn't respond to whining. Use your words. That's my response. Daddy doesn't respond. I, don't even, I can't even hear you right now. I just can't hear you. La, 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 la. Use words. Bring me that whiny business. All right. But let's be honest. I mean, don't they learn a little bit of that from watching us, from overhearing our conversations as parents about the hardships we're walking through and, <sighs> right? Let's just be honest. They, they get some of it from sin nature, a lot of it. They learn some of it from us too because we're, we're just like these people. Like, I don't know what your experience was. Here's some common testimonies. Uh, 
one, I uh, went to youth camp, had this spiritual high experience, got saved, gave my life to Jesus, and two weeks later, I returned to my sin. There's a common testimony in the church. It's the same thing. God rescues, he saves, and we do what? Forget that he is good and trustworthy. He sees every need. And all he's asking us to do is to respond by believing and express it in worship. Now, I want to I turn our attention to a couple things. So here's the pattern. God leads with his presence. Did you know God is leading your life with his presence? And if you'll stop, his presence will be thick in your life. You want, you want a thick presence of God? Quit multitasking God. Quit multitasking your time with God. You can use your smartphone to be in the word. Stop, though. Sit in it. Sit in the presence of God. Your prayer time with, with your family, and like we, we've got a schedule, we've got to run, we've got to pray. We've got to pray, we've got to pray, we've got to pray. We've got to no wonder God's presence is thin in our family's lives. We forget and we complain. I would say this, 99.9% of our complaining for Christians is because we've forgotten. He's a God who rescues. When you give your life to Jesus, now here's the thing. On one hand, Jesus says, come to me, you, you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. But then on the other hand, he says, if anybody's going to come after me and follow me, he must do what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily. You know what Jesus is saying to you? There is no more restful place for your soul than to be following me 100% surrendered. And we're going to walk through fields of sweetness and we're going to walk through fields of trial. But when you're surrendered and following me, there will be a sweetness about that, a place to rest. When your family is going through hardship, maybe even financial hardship, there can be a peace in that. When you're surrendered and you're following and you're sitting in, you're marinating in the presence of God. Just a couple of things about God's character going to the New Testament. I want to read just a couple of verses. This is the way God leads his people. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's going to start with this expression of the gospel doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense to a lot of people. God would rescue by sending his son. It doesn't make sense to people. Matter of fact, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't mean I don't believe it. It just doesn't make sense. Right? It's a stumbling block. But you know what else doesn't make sense? That God would call you guys to follow him. It doesn't make sense either. You're a people who quickly forget and complain easily and lose trust in the Lord. It doesn't make sense. And so he goes through this whole spiel about how God chose people who don't make sense. And he, this is the end of it in verse 28. He says this. God chose, talking about the people, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the what? presence of God God wants you in his presence being in God's presence requires trusting as soon as you quit trusting God you're you're backing away from the thickness of God's presence and who are you trusting in yourself your own observations your own I don't know if I can do this guys you can't do it you didn't do it the last time quit it come into my presence and trust me so that 
I might get the glory. And because of him, this is verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1, because of him you're in Christ Jesus. Don't forget that. Because of him you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Look at this, verse 31. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast where? In God and God alone. God is leading you as a Christ follower through situations that will require you to trust God 100%, not in yourself, so that in the end, you can declare God is trustworthy. Men, he's leading you to lead your families through those same situations. I don't, I don't care the, what, the, what some people are saying, maybe on TV or the radio, about how if, if you're walking through a trial, one, it's because of sin, or two, a lack of faith. It's not true. God's navigating you away from circumstances that are hard, and he's also navigating your life into circumstances that are hard so that you will know he is good. The idea of, like, what we just sang, his anchor holds within the veil and this, you know, this life because storm is like, in the midst of storms, sometimes God doesn't calm the storm right away. But you know what he does? He says, I'm the anchor that will hold you in the storm. The storm will subside. The waters will calm again. But I'm trustworthy in the midst of that stinking storm. My character doesn't change. This is on and on again through the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, talking about your salvation. says, for by grace you were saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may what? Boast. You don't have any bragging rights at the foot of the cross in the presence of God. He removes it all. He takes off all the facades, all your sense of self-security. He strips all that away, right? He says, come to me. You can be vulnerable in my presence. You don't have to pretend in my presence to be better than you are, to know more than you know. You don't know much about the Bible? Here's a safe place to be, my presence. All right. Um, Let's stop there. I'm going to save that last passage for the story next week. So, God is unveiling this remarkable story, isn't he? And he is, we've seen from, from start to now, he's the author of it. Like he, he opens and ends it in the same places with the same words. And he's writing a story with these consistent themes and this consistent display of his character and a consistent display of our response to God. You're going to see that over and over and over again. God is good, trustworthy, faithful, keeps his promises, and we quickly forget, complain, grumble. Over and over and over again. But here's what I want you to want to end with today. Um, by the way, you like the backdrop? For those of you who were here last week, you got to see the testimonies. Okay, the struggle with doing this, one, is I struggled, to, 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 I struggled with the thought that will these make sense if you can't see the backside? Okay, I struggled with that in my mind. And I really felt like God wanted us to do this. Um, so staff, Got together, uh, Brian Lamb helped me. We put it together, put it up, and, it, and so now here it is. And so, like, this communicates two things for us. I'm good with it, by the way, like it is. We don't need to know, right? Like, behind one of those is a testimony that says, I lost my husband. It's huge. But that's not who that person is anymore, right? This is the new identity. This is who you are now. This is why I put this. But we just sang earlier that, like, in every, situ- every one of these situations, who is the hero? Who's the hero? Yeah. 
by whatever name you want to call him, Jehovah Jireh, the provider, Jesus, God, yes. Every victory is whose? His. For there to be victory, there means there's going to be battle. He's going to lead us through situations, battle situations, a fight for your soul, a fight for your family's soul. Men, where's the safest place for your family to be in the midst of spiritual warfare? Thickly in the presence of God. Right? Because where his presence is is where you need to be. Even if there's a mountain in front of you and an ocean behind you, that's where you need to be, in his presence. I want to end today just by uh, just a simple invitation. If you have not trusted God with all of your life, if you have not yielded to him and said, you know what, I'm ready to take up my cross and follow you, I'm in. It's a huge step of faith, I get it. Okay, I get it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna extend an invitation to you that God is saying, listen, I, I want you to trust my presence and come follow me. You, you're, gonna, you're, gonna wanna die, you're gonna wanna die to yourself. I almost said you're gonna need to. You're gonna wanna die to yourself. That rest I was talking about is the, the rest that comes from getting rid of the anxiety of trusting yourself. And God is saying, I, I, I wanna pull you into my presence. I wanna lead you. I wanna lead you to my kingdom. And we're going to go through some trials. Just trust I'm taking you to the right trial, right? Just trust that I'm navigating this thing the right way. If you've never trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, today's the day. Today's the day of rescue for you. Rescuing you from yourself, from your own ideas, your own ability to plan your life. Jesus says, come. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's going to be adventurous. It's going to be hard. Come follow me. I'm going to pray for you in just a minute. And uh, Christ followers, I hope this awakens your soul. I hope this makes you think about Monday morning and maybe reading a Bible verse real quick and moving on. Multitasking God, passing him in the hallway. I hope you walk through this week looking for the thick presence of God on a daily basis. Let's pray together. Um, Lord Jesus, you are um, so trustworthy. And this morning, the this beautiful pattern, how you lead your people. And so, God, we, we understand that this is how we follow you. God, help us become a people who complain less and trust more. And God, maybe today for the very first time, somebody would trust you with their very life. Maybe there's a leader in the household here today who recognizes that they've been leading their family to follow them. And today they just want to say, you know what, I just, I'm done. I'm done leading my family into disappointment and failure and, and hardship that doesn't make sense. I want to follow Jesus and I want to be led. I want to be led by God's presence into times of sweetness, into times of struggle and battle, but, but I want to lead my family in the very presence of God. Lord Jesus, come meet with us now as we respond.